if you know someone who's had their hip or knee replaced, or if this happens to be you, odds are it was a pretty good decision. There's often a real before and after for patients, many of whom have been in a lot of pain and are limping around. Healthcare organizations and the staff performing these procedures have been feeling pretty good too, especially since the procedures have low rates of harm and complications. But it turns out there's still plenty of room for improvement. Now that above-average hospital readmission rates can equal Medicare fines when the initial admission was for elective arthroplasty, fines announced for the first time just this month, the orthopedic community is ramping up its work to improve the entire care experience. A look at how to achieve lower costs and better outcomes and better value um, all the way around for joint replacements on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly and also for later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. You may be familiar with Time-Driven Activity-Based Costing, or from now on, TDABC, and its application to a number of areas of healthcare. Joint replacement is the latest to benefit from this step-by-step analysis of the resources, costs, and time expended. The results are sometimes eye-opening in the best sense, and we're going to take a scalpel, okay, I couldn't resist that, to some of this with our guests today. I'll introduce them in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier, and he has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is the chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions in a few moments. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box at the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and their slide is up right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on the slides, I provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org alongside IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program, fill out our quick survey, and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right, thanks, John. A reminder, if you'd like to use Twitter, we welcome your tweets during or after today's program. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. All right, let me now briefly introduce our guests. Here in the studio with me is Robert Kaplan. He's the Marvin Bauer Professor of Leadership Development Emeritus at the Harvard Business School, where he has taught for 30 years. Bob Kaplan focuses on linking cost and performance management systems to strategy implementation, and he has some current research well underway in healthcare. Welcome, Bob. 
Thank you, Madge. Joining us by phone, a, ca a wonderful cast. Kathy Abbott is with us. She's the Administrator for Performance Improvement at Hackensack University Medical Center. Kathy has over 25 years of operational and leadership experience in nursing, education, risk management, and quality and performance improvement within hospital and home care settings. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Also on the phone is Jenny Rosengrant. She's an orthopedic nurse navigator at Moses Taylor Hospital. That's part of the hospital network Commonwealth Health. Jenny's position centers on patient care and navigation throughout the entire joint re replacement process. And we want to say a big welcome to Jenny. Thank you. All right, great. And also on the phone, a lot of phone people today. Yeah, there's our nice photo of Jenny. And now Kathy Luther is also with us. She's a vice president at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Kathy is responsible for furthering IHI's work to help hospital leaders and staff achieve bold aims. Key to this work is developing strategic partnerships that leverage innovation and continuous learning across organizations. And welcome to you, Kathy. Thank you, Mitch. All right, you get the first question. You're going to kind of help set the scene for us. So alongside a team from the Harvard Business School, that of course includes Bob Kaplan and Derek Haas and others, IHI has been working with over 30 organizations this past year, many of whom willingly opened up a Pandora's box of revelations using TDABC. Bob Kaplan's going to say more about that in a moment, but I thought you could tell us about the IHI Joint Replacement Learning Community writ large and why this learning has been so important. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, thanks, Madge. Um, as most of you know, IHI has worked on quality and value for many, many years. We've reduced harm. We've worked on improving flow. We've worked on safety across organizations. Uh, we saw some trends and did some preliminary work that made us want to focus more deeply on specific conditions. And given that joint replacement surgery is one of the top procedures uh, in U.S. healthcare today and is only expected to grow as baby boomers age, it seemed like a good place to start for a focused deep dive. Um, the fact is that primary hip and knee replacements are about a $10 million service line for the average high-volume hospital, um, and uh, that holds true for the folks that are in our community. Um, our joint replacement community's goal is to really help hospitals, we thought, achieve a 5% annual reduction in cost, which could turn out to be half a million dollars annually um, in that type of a volume. What we're actually seeing is many will achieve that and, and actually go beyond that. So you'll hear more from them about uh, their work and how they've done this. Uh, we really recognized we needed to provide organizations with tools and strategies to better understand their costs, their care processes, and then actually how to drive change in complex systems at both lower cost and improved care. And um, finally, recognize not only from this work but from others that finance and healthcare quality leaders, they share an agenda, but in many organizations, they're going about it in parallel. And uh, at best, then more often, they're in very siloed strategies. So our goal was really to support organizations in new ways of addressing value, to have finance and quality leaders work together much more specifically. Um, and it, as you'll hear from Dr. Kaplan in a moment, um, part of the focus was on the TDABC uh, costing methodology. Um, our goal, again, was to reduce costs and maintain our improvement, improve quality, but to also begin to understand uh, what the experience was like from the patient's point of view. So we wrapped all these things together um, into one community. 
Um, we started with value stream mapping, where we did a detailed analysis and step-by-step uh, -step costing. Um, we helped teams share and identify high-leverage practices. We found a startling amount of variation, even among high-performing organizations with high volumes. And again, you'll hear more from Dr. Kaplan about this. But the variation included everything from how they set up pre-surgically to how they manage pain to what supplies and um, techniques they use during the OR. OR times um, were uh, very variable. And discharge dispositions. Some sites were discharging patients home in a very short time. Uh, some were keeping patients much longer and using rehab extensively. Um, and finally, our, our finance partners worked really alongside with the quality teams to help create these process maps for the organization. And at least one example, um, a financial analyst actually spent time in the OR actually observing what was happening to help better understand um, what the costs were and how to actually do this. It's, that's a unique and probably extreme example, but um, the majority of the teams really told us, and we know from previous work, that um, this was new for them to work this closely with financial partners, and um, it provides a very robust collaboration that will serve them well in other communities. So um, one of the things we really wanted to help with this is not only sharing within the community, but also sharing within the organization uh, transparent learning together um, with outcomes and cost data that would help us drive improvement. And you'll hear more about that from two of the participants, um, Hackensack University and Moses Taylor, and it, about their specific learning. And I'll just say that um, there are very different organizations, which you'll soon find out. And we found that this methodology works across all types of settings. All right, Kathy, uh, thanks very much. Um, we have uh, other kinds of things we're going to sort of throw into the sauce on this program, in including uh, some early looks of, at what is uh, patient-reported outcomes can contribute to this whole thing. So we'll circle back with that. But thanks, Kathy Luther, for opening it up. All right, I want to now uh, turn to Bob Kaplan over at the Harvard Business School in our studios today. And um, I, I, I hesitate to call you an evangelist for uh, time-driven activity-based costing, but it's certainly uh, looking at your writing and uh, including a very recent piece in the Harvard Business Review, it's clear there's a real power uh, in this methodology uh, that's opening up uh, qu quite a, a few opportunities and the latest is joint replacement. So welcome and uh, let, let's hear what you've been learning and offering as well. Thanks. Okay, well thank you. Madge, as well as Kathy, who I've enjoyed collaborating with over the last year. Uh, first question it's reasonable for our audience to ask is, why do we need another acronym in healthcare? Uh, what's broken for which TDABC might be a solution? And actually, just uh, in the current issue of the Harvard Business Review, just uh, hitting the online uh, forums and the, your newsstand soon, uh, I have an article with my, with my project leader, Derek Haas, uh, and it says, how not to cut costs in healthcare. And there's a lot of mistakes made by finance people and hospital administrators when they try to reduce healthcare costs without being informed about a by a structural model of what causes costs to occur in healthcare. Uh, I mean, the most common uh, information that a finance person might have is the profit and loss statement. And it has lots of line item on there, personnel, salaries, uh, space, equipment. 
supplies. And so the natural inclination is to use that as the basis for uh, cutting costs, uh, either mandating a 5% reduction in health in uh, personnel costs or starting to lay off people, uh, particularly support people. And this, this can be a huge mistake and actually ends up raising costs, not lowering costs, because as you eliminate some uh, what seem like support, administrative personnel, those tasks still have to be done. And they get done by the remaining people, you know, who are the nurses and the doctors, uh, the clinicians in general, and they end up doing work that uh, is really not appropriate work for them, and they're not good at it, and uh, it actually slows them down, their productivity suffers, and sometimes patient outcomes suffer. Uh, also, we found, uh, surprisingly, that what people think is a very high cost area, like uh, equipment or space, is actually relatively small compared to personnel costs. And, and one of the learnings we found from our, uh, the joint uh, replacement learning community is that um, what contributes to some of our most productive surgeons at our most productive sites is actually having two operating rooms operated side by side by the clinical team. And you say, well, it's kind of a thrill to have uh, an extra operating room. Well, having an extra operating room available is a lot cheaper than having a surgical team waiting around for the previous room to be cleaned, for the next patient to be anesthetized and brought into the room. Uh, if you really want a lower cost, get maximum utilization of your most expensive and scarcest resource, which is the clinical team. Uh, you find finance people, they look at the materials and they try to negotiate uh, cheaper prices from the suppliers without really looking, are we ordering the right materials? And how are these materials being used? Not just trying to lower the purchase price. Uh, and perhaps the biggest one, and this is really the benefit from uh, the collaboration uh, of the IHI uh, community, is each clinical team operates in splendid isolation from all other clinical teams uh, in the region, in the country, in the world, who are seeing exactly the same case mix of patients and doing exactly the same uh, uh, procedure and, in fact, care cycle. A and when that happens, there's no opportunity for learning uh, or improvement. You don't see where some best practices are. And this can happen even within the same orthopedic department. If you have six uh, orthopedic surgeons, it's almost guaranteed that they're doing their surgery six different ways. The staffing is different, the mix of staff is different, the implants, supplies could be different, the rehab could be different. So even within the same practice, there's limited ability to capture what's really going on, to compare across whether it's different uh, clinicians or different facilities uh, as to who's really doing it the best and, and where the opportunity is for best practice sharing. So that was the opportunity we saw. And, uh, and so we've led 32 sites through the procedure of time-driven activity-based costing. And uh, it consists of doing these process maps or value stream maps uh, that you see here. Uh, and we have to capture the clinical and administrative processes done over a complete cycle of care. And so in this case, it starts with the initial uh, visit to the surgeon's office, and it really ends uh, at the end of the rehab. So we like to, we want to measure the costs over that complete cycle of care, and that requires documenting all the processes that are being used. Uh, and in the case of rehab, sometimes those are external to the organization. 
Notice this is in color. This is not just to be attractive, even though it does make it look better. Uh, each color actually represents a different type of employee, or a surgeon or a registered nurse or a physician's assistant or a receptionist. And this is, turns out to be extremely important in driving cost reduction, is to learn who's doing what. And then the third aspect here is a little circle associated with each box, and that's the approximate time taken by that person or piece of equipment doing that particular process step. So this is half of the costing methodology. The other half is just to find out what do each one of these resources, uh, personnel types or equipment types, cost. And we start uh, with the top line, which is what's the all-in expenses, uh, to starting with salaries and fringes, but it could include space and it could include uh, technology that that person has dedicated to her or him. Uh, an all-in cost for each of the employees or piece of equipment. The second part, and this is the unique aspect of time-driven activity-based costing, is what did we purchase with all that spending? And it turns out the answer is very simple, and it's one word. It's time. These people agree to show up, uh, and we're purchasing their time, and so the question is, how much time? And so we have little heuristic algorithms uh, to find out how many days a year people actually show up for work, and for each day, how many minutes are available during that day for doing patient-focused work. So it doesn't include education, it doesn't include research, it doesn't include going to meetings or going to training. How many minutes a day for, on average, clinical work? Typically comes out to be, as you see here, 90 to 100,000 minutes a year, and then we can get what is the cost per minute, the cost per available minute of each type of resource. And uh, if we go back one slide, uh, yep. you actually see on the bottom here one of the most remarkable things I've learned about doing this work in healthcare is there can be a 10 or 12 to 1 variation between the most highly paid and the least highly paid person who actually is working directly with the person delivering the service. I don't think any other industry other than professional sports has this kind of variation of people who are actually doing work. And so who does what turns out to be uh, incredibly important in thinking about efficiency and process improvement. Uh, so these are the two elements of time-driven ABC. Uh, the rest of it, once we understand this, is to uh, go back to all of the process maps over a cycle of care. For each one, we know how many minutes are required for each type of uh, personnel or equipment resource. We know their cost per minute. We multiply it together, and we add it up, and that's the costing model. Now, what we've learned, and people will say, well, how long does this take? Well, in early May of this year, after just a little over three months of work from the 32 sites, we were able, they were able to come back with their costs over the cycle of care, and we collected the information, and the information is, is anonymous, so each, every site just knows its data, and they see this kind of summary. So uh, the data were kept very confidential by uh, just Derek and, and me, uh, we're the only ones who have that access, and there's nearly a two-to-one variation across the sites, the, and here's 27 sites, and these are all high-volume sites. You had to have been doing at least 250 joint replacements a year to even be eligible to join this community. And so in both total knees and total hips, from the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile, so we're excluding the, high, the most 10% highest cost and the 10% lowest cost. 
So just looking at that mi middle 80%, there's still nearly a two to one variation from the, hot, the most to the least expensive. And it's across the board. I, I mean, it's in personnel costs, it's in consumables, it's in devices, and it's just about in every process step, uh, whether it, you know, it's the surgery, the post-acute uh, care recovery, and the rehab, we're seeing that enormous uh, variation. Uh, and so th this obviously sets off a lot of questions uh, as to why does that exist? Because the outcome's about the same, uh, near as we could tell. Uh, th and so this is just basic uh, process improvement. We, we've indexed the input prices, and you get almost the same range of variation, even if we assume every one of the sites pays their surgeons the same, their clinical assistants the same, the nurses the same. It's just in the, the quantity and the mix of personnel they're using has this enormous variation. And so we'll, I'm anxious to hear from uh, the two case studies, Hackensack and Moses Taylor, to find out what they've done. But from uh, some of the ones we've seen, uh, you can see the results already. Uh, they've changed the way they purchase implants because there was a, a two-to-one variation in what they were paying for the same implant. Uh, being who, how you discharge people, whether they go to home health care versus a skilled nursing or an extended care facility, uh, it's a five or eight to one differential in the total cost of rehab. And uh, so, and you see learning how to do better pain management, how to avoid readmissions, uh, even something as simple and mundane is which type of cement we use uh, and what's the quantity of cement that we should use in one of these joint replacements. So having valid data really stimulates action for improvement that enables us to deliver better outcomes at lower cost. Thank you so much, Bob, and uh, really have to <laughs> applaud <laughs> the, the very short amount of time Bob had to explain uh, a process um, that is, you know, will go on, can go on over a period of time in the joint replacement learning community, certainly got, o got going in January uh, and is still in the um, uh, space right now of uh, beginning to sort of harness everything uh, that has been learned so far. So think about your questions for Bob, for Kathy Luther. And now we're going to turn to Kathy Abbott at Hackensack. Um, so you are case in point of some of what uh, Bob and Kathy uh, Luther have been talking about. So tell us about hip and knee replacement surgeries at Hackensack and what you've gotten or your team has gotten out of zeroing in on all these processes and steps. Curious if you're surprised by what you discovered. And welcome again, Kathy Abbott. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, thank you. Um, well, just to give a little background, we're about 775 licensed beds, about 44,000 admissions, and about 398,000 outpatient, 398, outpatient visits, and about 1,600 physicians. Um, we have about 74 orthopedic surgeons, and we do about close to 700 total knee uh, procedures uh, in the last 12 months, and then uh, about total hip is uh, a little bit less than that, slightly less than that. Um, we have um, implemented and trialed a number of things, and we are starting to see some of the things that the professor just spoke about. Um, for instance, um, uh, although we focus on two surgeons, we've been trying to um, involve all of our, our uh, surgeons, and the team has been very, very, um, very active. Um, we um, had uh, tried uh, pre-op total joint classes. Um, which were successful, and about a third of the patients now attend that, um, which really does help to prepare patients. 
Um, we also um, were implementing physical therapy on the first day, but we're moving that up to day zero, as they call that, to be a little more efficient and to get going sooner. Patients are doing well with their XBREL, so they don't feel the pain, and they are able to get up and move. Um, and, and that's been a plus for satisfaction and also for, um, for their well-being. Um, we've also um, trialed the use of gel packs more recently, um, something less costly, easier to use for patients instead of other types of uh, cooling devices. And we investigated uh, mixing cement um, versus our premixed um, kind, but we, we felt that that may not be something we do want to pursue, although it might be the premix is more expensive, but I think we felt it was more problematic and we'd like to stay with the premix. Um, we are renegotiating implant costs uh, with the surgeon input and are looking at some of the other products we use too for some savings there also. And um, we are investigating the use of our EPIC, which is our electronic medical record, uh, via MyChart for a patient portal um, for some uh, PRO um, feedback from patients. We don't have a formal um, process in place for PRO right now. Um, and we did hire more recently an orthopedic transition of care nurse uh, to help follow with these patients um, and ensure a good um, transition of care. Uh, currently, um, we have uh, more patients going home for the um, total hip cases. We've ranged from 42 now up to about 60% of them, 62% uh, going home rather to a facility post-discharge. Um, and we've had a little more variability with the knees, but we're up to about 42% uh, of them going home right now. Um, and our readmission rate has come down also on the hips at the same time. So we are managing to send more patients home, but um, we are seeing also less readmissions. Um, we have also um, are trying to uh, renegotiate some of our additional uh, uh, products, too, uh, in terms of cost. And I think altogether, we've, um, we're very uh, satisfied that the team has really found uh, ways to be more efficient. Uh, we thought we had an excellent program before, which we do, but we found that, that uh, focusing on TDABC and looking at our processes, we felt that there was more that we could do. And that did surprise us um, uh, by that. Another area was scripting, um, although we were providing um, language from the doctor's office through the processes of care to reinforce the patients would be going home. We're making that more formalized for areas beyond um, the um, APNs, uh, Janine Bodden, um, and uh, some of the other um, uh, staff that work with the patients, whether it's physical therapy, case management, or the nursing staff. Okay. So those are just some of the things that we're doing here at Hackensack. All right, thank you. Is Janine with you? Uh, on the call today? Yeah, unfortunately, Janine couldn't be here. Okay. I don't think she was able to call in. Okay. Just want to acknowledge her. When we are we're, uh, see our representatives and our team leads here, um, they also yes. represent larger teams. And Janine Bod, Joint Coordinator and APN for Total Placements at Hackensack, has also been extremely instrumental. Thank you, Kathy. Again, a rapid-fire summary uh, of a lot of things. And I like your comment also of seeming to have an excellent 
program and uh, then discovering lots of areas for improvement. And I want to thank the questions that are starting to roll in. Thank you very much. I think what we're going to do is we're going to first hear from Jenny Rosengrant, and then we'll uh, we'll pick off um, uh, the things that you're all thinking about as you hear um, our uh, presenters today. Jenny, go ahead from Moses Taylor. I was thinking that if I was in Scranton, PA, um, I would want to go to your facility or perhaps some of the others that you're working with. Um, so I'm curious, what did this costing analysis reveal uh, that perhaps you and your colleagues weren't aware of, and what things have you targeted for improvement? And welcome again. Thank you, Matt. Um, yes, Moses Center Hospital, just to give you a little bit of background, it's located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's actually a 217-bed acute care facility, and it's part of the Commonwealth Healthcare System, which is one of the largest networks here in northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, it's joined together with the, J, um, the Joint Replacement Community in uh, January with um, Regional Hospital Scranton. Um, they're both part of the Commonwealth Health System, so we kind of joined together um, as a collaboration, um, although we do have different orthopedic surgeons and we do different things um, with our total joint replacement patients, um, but our goal was to um, kind of collaborate and address variations so that we can make things similar because we are actually only about a block away from each other. Um, our average total hip replacements per year is about 78, with the average total knees being about 235. We do have three surgeons right now here at Moses Taylor Hospital who do um, perform total hip and total knee replacements. However, for this product, we started by focusing on one patient, uh, one surgeon um, for these patients. Um, we felt that we would start small and then eventually get bigger. Um, after completing the process maps with the um, joint community um, and the cost data collection phases, we actually discovered that the, our physical therapy process was um, found to be a high cost area for us. Um, it led to addressing our length of stay and our discharge dispositions. Um, prior to um, what we improved with our therapy, the, our floor nurses would actually get all of our joint replacement patients out of bed um, on post-op day zero. Um, so that meant that more nursing staff was being utilized on the floor. Um, and so what we did was um, we had therapy see these patients um, on post-op day zero, um, um, the first day after surgery, um, to kind of utilize the therapist more and getting them to ambulate um, and progress better with therapy. Um, it did lead to more patients being discharged home, we were hoping, versus being discharged to rehab. Um, they are actually requiring now a shortened hospital stay due to the increased mobility. Um, we found that by having therapy see them on post-op day zero, um, they're more tolerable to, um, to therapy, and therefore they're actually usually being discharged post-op day two rather than post-op day three. Um, the um, initial test also included, um, we did start pre-operative uh, education classes um, with our patients so that they were, were going to maintain their expectations that they would be getting up the day of surgery. Um, we have case management um, integrating into the pre-operative classes to encourage the patients for the goal of going home rather than to versus to rehab. Um, and we also included our PACU staff um, to help us in this also because prior to this, the PACU staff was very hesitant to raise the patient's head of bed 
um, post-surgery due to different issues such as blood pressures, uh, dropping, nausea, dizziness, et cetera. Um, so then, therefore, when the patients return now to the room, um, it's much easier to ambulate them because they already are in a good position um, and already getting over that first phase of the dizziness and stuff. Um, the only downfall that we actually have seen um, with this is that a lot of our patients um, receive spinal anesthesia um, and nerve blocks, and they do not ambulate, seem to ambulate as far as those who do not receive them. Um, also, we've seen that patients who have, have bilateral knee replacements have a much greater difficulty ambulating with the therapy. Um, from the um, process that we um, implemented, we did actually um, review it. Um, and as we've seen, our length of stay has um, decreased very slightly, but it has decreased um, just a very, very, very tiny bit. Um, but we have seen a great deal of patient satisfaction um, with this, and the patients report that they're satisfied and they're very compliant with ambulating. Um, we've also um, been collecting our who's and who's um, pre-surgery um, to view their mobility, and now we're in the process of, of the post-discharge phase um, to follow up with it to determine the success of the therapy process. Um, also, the staff, um, our floor staff has been very encouraging, um, of course, because they are now being able to utilize where they're needed, um, and the therapy staff has been working very digitally to ensure that they're all seen. Um, they have changed their schedules, um, so there is a therapist here a little bit later, um, the only issue being the um, surgeries that are scheduled for very much later in the day and the patient's not returning to the floor till the evening are not being seen beforehand. Um, so um, with, the, um, with this process, we hope to initiate this to all three of the surgeons. Um, all three of these surgeons, um, we actually do get all three surgeons' patients out of bed. We've just only been collecting data for the one surgeon. So we hope in the future that we can collect it for all three to compare um, because these surgeons do things a little bit differently. Um, one surgeon uses a spinal, where one surgeon uses general, where one surgeon uses a block and one surgeon doesn't. So we'd like to compare to see, um, you know, if we can make some changes and, and improve the progress with therapy. Um, you know, when we were doing this, we also found out that our discharge to home really didn't move the way we anticipated. So in the future, we're going to look at pain management practices as a potential next step and try to improve the discharge to home for the majority of our patients. Wow. A lot of really rich stuff in here. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's like peeling back an huh, onion of some sort. Um, thank you very much, uh, Jenny Rosengrant and Kathy Abbott, and, of course, Bob Kaplan and Kathy Luther. You've all given us quite a bit. The questions are rolling in. And I think what I'm going to do before we um, have John remind you of how to use the chat, and many of you clearly are already uh, up and around and using it, um, Kathy, any comments uh, as you've kind of been listening uh, to this work and sort of how it even uh, kind of compares to uh, if we were to hear 30, 32 stories uh, uh, today, which we don't have time for, but hopefully we'll learn more about in the future. Uh, do these uh, kind of compare and contrast nicely? So um, it's a, a great example of what Bob earlier called teams working in splendid isolation, even when they're doing many of the similar procedures. Um, you just heard Jenny and Kathy both go through a long list of things that they found that they could um, do relatively quickly, um, small changes, big changes, PT on day zero, 
uh, changing cement, all those kinds of things. We found that across the community. I would say every every organization within the community found uh, 10 to 15 changes they could make. Um, and by sharing with each other, they learned the best ways to implement them in their um, setting. So um, it was a really robust community, and you heard from two very different organizations um, about a lot of changes that they were able to make. Okay, thanks, Kathy. All right, John, very quickly, you want to remind people uh, about chat just to make sure everyone can take part. Thanks. Yeah, just make sure all your questions are directed to all participants in the comments. Thank you. That was simple. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm going to try and sort of distribute these uh, a little bit and uh, make sure. Um, I have no idea what VAMC stands for, so maybe the person who wrote that VAMC could just clarify. I think that looks like a Trish name. If you could just clarify what you mean by that, we'll try to get to your question. Um, somebody's asked to see a job description of the OTN. Uh, orthopedic, again, we're, I know we're into acronyms today, but <laughs> thanks for clarifying, and we'll try and get an answer to that. All right, a couple questions about pre-op. Uh, just thought I would ask about that, the frequency of doing pre-op classes, the high level of participation. Kathy Abbott, maybe we'll start with you uh, and Jenny weigh in, and then I'll go to Bob for a few questions. Yes, um, in the pre-op classes is run by Janine Bodiner, APN, um, and um, she's an excellent teacher and basically prepares patients what to expect, what to expect for coming to the hospital, what will happen, um, you know, along the uh, continuum of care, again, reinforcing the emphasis to be going home, but everything from um, what will be the, you know, again, reviewing pain uh, relief uh, activity um, uh, and, um safety types of measures, um, and pretty much just making sure the patient is fully informed, knowing what to expect. She has a booklet that she put together um, explaining all this, too, and they review that, um, making them familiar with the location uh, of services and um, post-discharge uh, services also. Um, so it, that's primarily the focus of it is preparation, education, um, and providing the continuity um, and making sure that patients are understanding of, of their role in all of this. Yeah. Bob wants to say so something. Kathy, I'd just like to build on that with some specific uh, learnings that we got. And this is a great example while having physicians spend more time, not less time, with patients actually lowers costs. Uh, and so what's happening at this pre-op visit is, especially the surgeon can set expectations. Uh, and as Kathy said, the expectations are, you know, when you start physical therapy and what the length of stay is going to be. So you're already implanting this idea in the patient's mind. But this discharge, it turned out to be one of the really big factors that you can uh, influence to lower costs. So ballpark estimates that we got from the cost estimation were that if you discharge somebody to home, uh, it cost about $1,000 for the rehab. If you discharge to a skilled nursing facility, it's 5000 If you go to an extended care facility, it could be uh, $8,000. So the percentage of your patients that go home versus to the skilled nursing or extended care facility is a great explanatory variable for some of the cost variation. And so we went to the people who had up to a 90% discharge rate to home. And we said, well, how do you do that? And the surgeon said, we talked to them. 
And we say, that's at the pre-op visit. Said, that's our expectations. And the patients right. and the families naturally have a concern. Well, gee, uh, how can I get in or out of the car? How can I uh, go upstairs and downstairs? And he said, those are very good questions. We're going to show you. And, and one of our sites, uh, Tony DeJoy, a surgeon at the UP UPMC in Pittsburgh, he actually has bought a used car. And he has in the rehab facility, and he shows the incoming patients, says, here's a car, and, and we're going to show you how to get in and out of it, and we're going to practice. And he had a staircase built uh, with rails, and he says, we're going to do this too. And then they felt a lot better about going home. Uh, it, it, you know, he had to pay for the car, and he had to pay for the staircase to be built. That's a lot cheaper, though, if you can send people home for $1,000 than sending them home for five or $8,000. Uh, so the, I think the... Use, use our time wisely is what's important, not across-the-board cuts in how many patients you can see per day. Thanks a lot, Bob. A very, very important uh, uh, addition there. Jenny Rosencrantz, anything you want to add about pre-op classes and uh, the difference they've made at Moses Taylor? Um, yeah, we've been doing the pre-op classes since last January, and um, we do them um, every Wednesday. We have them. And the pre-admission testing actually schedules them for it. So when they come into their pre-admission testing, they actually come into the class. So we make it part of their pre-admission testing. Um, and we actually include um, our case managers in the class um, as well as our therapists in the class and um, pharmacy. So the patients get a load of information. Um, they also get a booklet. Um, and then I teach them, you know, what to expect, why they're here. Um, and it's a great tool, and a lot of the patients who come through um, when I do, like, discharge phone calls um, to see if they came to the class and if they had, you know, if they learned stuff from the class and they were prepared, more prepared for surgery, they absolutely say they love the class. It really um, gives them an overview and it prepares them so that they don't have that anxiety coming in on what to expect. Um, and um, they do, like, like he was saying, we do encourage, like, discharge to home, and I know that's our physician's goal. I spoke to our physician, and he would like them, you know, to go home. Um, that is their goal in the future for everybody to go home, and that's encouraged also in the class so that they're not scared, you know, when they come. So it is a really great thing. Thank you. Okay, very interesting. I love that image of the used car uh, that Tony DeJoya uh, has incorporated. Uh, sounds so much like Tony DeJoya. Um, a couple questions for you, Bob, and Kathy or anyone else, feel free to weigh in. So uh, somebody is asking about the calculation of costs per minute. Uh, I did a quick calculation. It looks like this is uh, a worked minute versus paid minute and uh, all kinds of interesting things said there. I think Bob can figure that yeah. question out. Uh, and somebody else, I'll maybe combine this, Bob, uh, has asked in a P for P, pay for performance environment, what three or four orthopedic metrics would you recommend? Uh, or uh, if, if that's a way you think about it. Sure. Go ahead. No, I think uh, I'm pleased to respond to, to both of those. Actually, the calculation is neither paid minute nor worked minute. It's available minutes. Uh, and I, I really i am not interested in how many days you're paid for. I want to know how many days you're available for work and how many minutes in that day. And so literally we start with 365 and we can subtract out weekends and holidays and then vacations and then paid leave, uh, unpaid leave, unauthorized leave, uh, going to conventions. Uh, how many days do you actually show up for work? Uh, and that's the important, that's part of your capacity. And then for if you're working nominally for a seven and a half hour, 
hour a day. Surgeons sometimes work 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, how many minutes are available, again, for the patient? So net out uh, breaks and meetings and training. Uh, that's not non-productive, uh, but it's just unavailable. So it's really we try to find out how many minutes are available. Uh, in terms of the reimbursement, and that's an extremely important question. It's really where we want to go with a number of the sites uh, because the current fee-for-service model is really works against this value framework that we're talking about. So we're very strong advocates for bundled payments. And the bundled payments should be contingent on outcomes. And that was the question you were asking, uh, what kinds of outcome metrics? Well, first, uh, you don't want to have a cost accounting professor determine your outcome metrics. Uh, but we do uh, work and consult with uh, physician groups, and they're working to get these metrics. And, and some of them you know, could be ones you're used to, like length of stay and complication of readmission rates. Uh, but we want to get metrics that are related to functionality. I mean, can you ride a bicycle? Uh, can, can you play tennis again? Can you ski black diamonds, assuming you could do that before? Uh, so have you really restored the functionality for the patient? And then the patient reported outcomes on the uh, degree of pain, uh, the nature of the care. Uh, those are important, too. And, and we actually see that the at some point, the bundle payment will be contingent on achieving at least threshold levels across that set of uh, clinical and as well as patient reported outcomes, uh, just the way we buy every other service. Uh, and so that'll be condition specific because uh, the outcomes for joint replacements are going to be different than spine surgery. They're going to be different than prostate cancer, and they're different from diabetes. So we're going to have to, the generalization is come up with a good set of medical condition specific outcomes. And then by knowing our costs, we'll be able to offer prices. Uh, a bundled price that will cover all the costs, including anesthesiology and pre-op visits and recovery and rehab, uh, and give us a margin over our costs when we're using efficient processes and good capacity utilization. Uh, and people who are good at this and deliver good outcomes and ha are efficient uh, will have nice margins and growing uh, total margins, uh, get more business, we hope, which is how it should be. Thank you. Um, I see a kind of related question, but I think maybe, Kathy, I'll just ask this and maybe I'll tee off this question uh, from Margie here. What about discharge dispositions requiring for requirement, I'm sorry, for Medicare prime patients under bundled payments? I'm being told in Illinois that they have to have, I think, HH's home health or SNF visit before uh, OP, occupational physical therapy, I'm not sure, OP visit, um, outpatient visit, actually, that must be it. I'm doing, I'm trying my best here <laughs> to decipher your questions, <laughs> folks. Uh, I'm just curious, you're welcome to answer that one in particular, but did this come up a lot, this issue about the payment schemes right now and what's required or not uh, in terms of when, when you're process mapping, there are certain things that may be built right into what you have to do uh, in order for it to be recognized uh, as, as the procedure to the payer. Uh, Kathy? Yeah, so I will start and I will turn it to Kathy Abbott, whose organization is under a bundle payment uh, scenario for some of their patients. But um, a couple things. We already know that the payment schemes don't exactly match um, what we know is best sometimes, and uh, sometimes the clinical care is improving faster than the payment schemes. So um, the, the key for clinicians is to get much better at what they do and to understand how to get much better at what they do. Secondarily, 
um, we need to probably push the field further um, to not accept the regulations that are just handed out there um, to try to impact them, number one. Um, and um, one of the other things is I uh, am working with a group of CFOs, and um, they really want to craft um, things that take risk in general so that they can um, really work with payers in different ways, uh, Medicare Advantage and others, to um, do exactly what Bob uh, was just describing, um, take a bundle payment, accept the risk, take care of the patients in better and better ways, and um, make a margin, but at less cost to the overall system. And I don't know, uh, Kathy Abbott, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, right now we really look at which patients um, would be appropriate for going home and which ones really may not be able to do that and would require to go to a SNF or rehab, inpatient rehab. But the direction seems to be that we are seeing more uh, opportunity to send them home and, and right away um, hook them up for the home care evaluation and make sure that they know they'll go home and have home, home physical therapy support. Um, we're just starting to get some of the data in reference to bundled payment, so um, we'll have more, but I don't have all that handy right now. But um, we do uh, work with an organization also that um, helps to follow some of the patients, like a navigator, to make sure that they do um, follow them up at home and have access to services or any other support services, too, that may need to be connected to to make sure that they can be successful at home. Um, and really, we have been uh, successful at, at, at getting more of those patients to go home than before we started this program. Uh, and again, that's built into the initial classes uh, um, that we do, uh, joint classes at the Wellness Center, I should add, too. And we do also, um, as noted in the chat, we do have pre-admission testing there also. But they meet the case manager, the physical therapist, and so on. So it, it is uh, really um, directed more in that, that area. And we have been pretty successful with that. We're, we only started off with two with our surgeons, but we will be ex expanding to more and more of them. Um, so that, that is the direction for patients who are eligible to go that way. So uh, I'm going to ask, Je thank you, Kathy, Kathy's. Uh, Jenny and uh, maybe Bob, you can weigh in on this. This is sort of an interesting question in a sense. As the teams have been working on their improvements, is there a sort of process that you begin to start plugging in some of the new information into uh, the value streams or the TDABC? In other words, do you st can you start updating that in a way? Is that a useful way that, th that this might happen? Uh, Jenny, if that puts you on the spot, I'll go to Bob first. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm not really sure. <laughs> okay. Well, let me start with Bob. I'll come back to you. Something. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. If you go back to uh, my process slide, uh, maybe it was the third one there, you see if we have all these maps for all the care processes, if you change a process or eliminate the process or you shift the resource who's doing the process, uh, it, it automatically readjusts the cost because yeah. the minutes are going to change for different types of personnel. Uh, the cost per minute presumably stays the same until uh, they get an annual raise. Uh, and so one of the nice things about this is the costs automatically adjust as long as you keep the documentation of your processes up to date. Okay, thank and you. I saw someone ask a question yeah. uh, on uh, what happens as you get good at this and you yeah. use your resources better. Uh, what happens next? Uh, <laughs> what does happen next? <laughs> well, well, the immediate thing is you create unused capacity in uh -huh. some of your resources. And here you have a choice. Uh, well, 
there's really only two ways to, to really uh, lower your total spending or lower total costs, and one is uh, you can take on more volume with the same resources. And given the aging population and the curve that Kathy showed at the beginning, this is the most likely. Uh, consequence, which is that it will expand your capacity to handle more joint replacements with the same uh, quantity and mix of resources that you currently have. Now, if you're in a place, however, where you cannot uh, expand the volume, then you're going to start to search for ways to redeploy some of the uh, unused time or un people. If you get up to 90,000 minutes of unused capacity in a personnel type, then that person could be re redeployed to another uh, clinical condition. Uh, but either way, you're going to be lowering the cost per case uh, and getting a much better allocation of resources uh, in the healthcare sector. Thank you. So, Jenny, a uh, question, maybe I'll ask you. Uh, somebody is asking whether discussions or home care uh, focus is included in the pre-op classes. Uh, yeah, in the pre-op class, we discuss all the options for the patients being discharged. We discuss um, their options going to rehab versus um, going to um, home with uh, home health care um, versus going to a skilled. Um, and a lot of things that are actually addressed um, actually, they're actually told straight out too. A lot of that depends on their insurance, unfortunately. Um, so we, again, we do encourage them to go home with home health. Um, it is for the better, um, and it is actually, you know, more cost effective for them to go home. Okay. But it is addressed in the class as well. Okay. Here's a question. Let me see if I can get it in. Um, how can you determine which outcomes in rehab need to be met when knee or hip replacement patients may have different rehab goals? Um, that seems like that would come up kind of naturally. Um, who wants to talk about that? Um, Kathy Luther, does that, uh, did that come up a lot uh, in, in the communities? Um, sure, I'll take a stab at that. And it kind of went back to um, what Bob said earlier. What does the patient want to do? Um, and what is the patient's lifestyle, and what do they want to return to, and what condition are they in when they come for their uh, knee replacement? And we all know that's extremely varying. Um, if they're a marathon runner who would like to get back to hiking in some way, that's a very different rehab goal than um, an 85-year-old woman who would just like to um, play with her grandchildren um, or take long walks with her friends. So I think all those things have to be taken into consideration um, by a rehab staff, and um, that's where we really bring in the voice of the patient, and, and where's the patient now? What does the patient want to get back to? What does that look like, and how do we um, adapt the care and the therapy for them? Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks a lot. I'm going to take a quick uh, fly over here to John. Uh, the work goes on. <laughs> Obviously, we're hearing that from the teams and uh, wanted to just uh, tell you kind of what it, it's possibly going to look like here at IHI. John? Yeah, thanks, Madge. Uh, if you're hoping to dig into this work a little bit more, maybe with your organization, uh, you should check out the Joint Replacement Learning Community. There's a slide up there with a little bit of information estimated to launch in April of 2015. Um, you should be able to find out a little bit more in November. Um, but if you have any questions, contact Lee Carroll at IHI. It's lcarroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, -L, at IHI.org. 
and uh, we'd be happy to uh, to include you. Thanks. All right. Thanks very much, John. Okay, we're gonna we're five minutes to the time. It's been a great audience. It's always fabulous when you start to answer each other's questions, and we welcome that because this chat is something you can download when you get off the program, so you have that as a resource as well as everything else. Somebody uh, early on, Bob Kaplan asked a uh, kind of a wanted to try and nail this down in terms of what theory you're using here. He says, TDABC is one view of the total process, value stream mapping another. What is the macro frame you're using to guide the total process? Does everyone on the team also know the full process and setup? I mean, are they equally kind of informed around all these analytic tools? So maybe I'll throw that at you and also we'll start sort of our wrap-up remarks. Okay, thanks. Yeah. I mean, the theory uh, was given by Kathy at the beginning, and that's the, the value framework. Uh, and maybe we could get that uh, equation back in because th this is the, uh, the touchstone for everything we do. And we say, well, ultimately we want the health sector to be organized around delivering better outcomes for patients at a lower cost. And, the you know, we talked about outcome measurement and, and uh, and how to go about that. It has to be medically condition-specific, and as Kathy points out, sometimes it varies by patient given their, uh, given their demographics and uh, previous capabilities. Uh, but we also need to measure costs over that same unit of analysis, which is that whole cycle of care for treating that medical condition. And uh, time-driven ABC is the tool that enables you to calculate the cost of all the resources being used to treat the patient for that medical condition. So it lines up uh, perfectly well with the outcomes. Uh, and then what we talked about a little bit, uh, and we need to talk much more about this, is then how do we make the payments based on value delivered? And that really is the role for bundled payments contingent on delivering you know, threshold performance on the outcomes and high enough to cover the costs of those people who do high volumes efficiently. And just so you feel that this is not hypothetical, uh, we, we are studying what's now happening in Sweden, and the county of Stockholm for the last five years has been reimbursing for all joint replacements with a single bundled payment. One payment, same for everybody who does it. It was set at a lower uh, fractile of what their current payments were. Uh, and this is Sweden, who some people think is a socialist country, but also has, you know, the ideal, it's universal health care, single payer, uh, uh, you can go wherever you want. And they have found the only way they could, you know, mobilize the resources to meet the demands, the growing demands for this procedure was to move to a bundle. And the experience was uh, the backlog disappeared in two years uh, and outcomes were better. Uh, and so they're now extending this to 10 other medical conditions, including spine surgery. So this is real. This is, this is feasible, and, and that's, th that's the path we're heading to because it's the only mechani payment mechanism that's consistent with this value framework. All right. Thank you so much, Bob Kaplan. Uh, Kathy Abbott, some uh, final thoughts from you, uh, kind of looking ahead, uh, uh, reflections, any which way you want to go. Okay, uh, thank you. I just would like to thank uh, IHI. I think what we and all the participants in this collaborative because we've learned a lot from one another. And I think whether it was in the in-person meeting or on webinars, I think it's been helpful to our team to see where we have further opportunities. And and it's good to learn from one another. And I, and I thank our team also, headed by Dr. Michael Kelly, 
um, at our Orthopedic Institute here because uh, it really do, does take teamwork and many people to, you know, focus on that end goal of value, as Dr. Kaplan mentioned. Thank you so much, uh, Kathy Abbott. Uh, Jenny Rosencrant, <coughs> back from your maternity leave, thrown right into it. We really <laughs> appreciate your diving right into all of this uh, with us. Uh, wh what are you kind of anticipating or looking forward to uh, as you get back into this work? Yeah. Um, as I'm getting caught up with everything, um, like I did say, I am actually going to try to start collecting our our data for all three surgeons because I'd like to compare to see the differences and to see if we can, they all work in with the same office, so I'd like to see if we can get them to all kind of um, start doing the same things. And in a couple ways we have collaborated with them, it's kind of hard to get them all to move their separate ways and turn into one way, but um, in the near future I'm hoping that it gets us to where we want to be so that everything will be uh, continuity of care for the patients as well. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, we will have more discharges to home um, and our length of stay will decrease and we will have great patient satisf uh, satisfaction. Um, and I don't think I mentioned, but we are in the process of um, they're remodeling our unit now. So it's going to be a joint replacement center. So in the near future, hopefully we'll get an accreditation for it as well. Fantastic. Sounds like a lot of good reasons to come back and visit with all of you uh, on, on this work. Thank you so much, Jenny Rosengrant. And uh, as our panelists today, Kathy Luther, you get the last word. Well, thank you. And I just want to reiterate what a pleasure it's been to work with this community and uh, Dr. Kaplan and his team. And um, I'm really convinced in all my work and all my years in healthcare of as you said, you lay off the staff, then you rehire them back, then you do this over here, then you cut supplies 10%. I'm really convinced that this is the, the way that we're going to really understand the value that we deliver. Um, and if we can really put some numbers to that value equation and begin to calculate it in ways that everybody can agree to, I, I think that's definitely the future. All right. Again, thank you so much, Kathy Luther, Bob Kaplan, Kathy Abbott, Jenny Rosengrant. Uh, you didn't see her on the show today, but I also want to give a big shout out to Jill Duncan, who did a lot of work uh, behind the scenes, and also Kayla DeVincentis, who also has been extremely helpful in this community, uh, as well as with this WIHI. I want to just remind you, next up on WIHI, on November 6th, we're going to jump over to the electronic health record and look at some of the opportunities and challenges going on there uh, with patient safety uh, issues that are cropping up with the, that very technology. Technology, so we hope you'll tune in to that, and that uh, web page is now live. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides uh, that we shared with you today, and if you get confused and aren't sure how to do that, you can always email info at IHI.org, and they'll be happy to send you all the resources. By the way, the audio and everything we shared today will be up on our website tomorrow. Uh, if you'd like to use Facebook, uh, Jane Rossner helps us out also, and she sometimes gets a few comments up there on our Facebook page, you're welcome to add to that. There are a great group of people here who help make WIHI possible every other week, and they're John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Lily Stairs. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. You've been a great audience. Much appreciated. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. <laughs>